We are going to be talking about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs for the next three weeks, and uh, just diving in a little bit to the New Testament. You might remember a few weeks ago, I, I suggested that the difference between psalms and hymns and spiritual songs might be about their connection with God. So we may say that psalms are songs that are sung to God, and uh, particularly the Psalter, the book of Psalms in the Bible, is full of psalms that are directly sung to God. And we might say that when we use psalms in making our music and making our worship in the gathering of God's people, we use um, the words that help us say to God the things that we would like to by way of, of worship and praise. The second category is hymns. And we may say that hymns are the music or the songs that are about God. Not, first of all, to God, but they're about God. And um, I have um, two books in, in my library that I treasure. One is my mom's Bible, and the other is my grandmother's Believer's Hymn Book. And I looked this morning at the inscription. It was from Templemore Hall in Belfast in 1949. And it was given to her as first prize for good attendance by the Sunday school superintendent. Somebody said that if you were to give him only a Bible and a hymn book, he would be fine. And many times the hymns in the history of the church are the ways that we tell ourselves about God. So they're not directly to God, but they are how we describe God as we understand him. And uh, sometimes just going back and going over the words of hymns uh, is very helpful to us. And in our day, we're, we're still writing hymns. Um, we will see as time goes on how many of the hymns we're writing now last. Um, the ones that have been written before have sort of been sifted, and we still have some great old hymns that we keep on singing. And now we have new hymns that are being written, and if you will think about them, they are almost exclusively about God. They describe God. They are songs or their music about God. The third category is the category of spiritual songs. And how would that be a different genre, a different kind of music or song than psalms or hymns? And I suggested a little bit tongue-in-cheek that these could be thought of as songs that are by God. They are as though God sort of enters into the mix of his people and he generates songs. He, he almost in, sort of interrupts our thinking and in, intrudes with some words. And so there, there is this practice in the church of singing in the spirit. And it's not because they are psalms that have been written or hymns that have been written but it's as though God comes and he just places thoughts in our minds and um, they issue themselves oftentimes in music in a lovely harmony that comes about um, as though God himself were singing in the mix of his people. So that's a, it's kind of a novel idea and I suggested that maybe at some point we will we'll get Wayne over there to just help us to uh, sing those songs and start some music and see how that goes. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Did you know there are hymns in the New Testament? Not just words about hymns, not just the, the term hymns, but there are actual hymns that are written into the text of the New Testament. Uh, 
Um, when we look at the Bible, some people that have a lot of time on their hands do what they call form criticism. Form criticism is to look at literature and ask, what is the form of this literature? Um, they might use the term genre. What is the genre of this, this literature? So you might say, well, the form of literature here is poetry. And you read poetry in a particular way. Um, some might say, well, the form of literature that we're looking at here is apocalyptic in the Bible. And apocalyptic literature is hidden literature. It's sort of a hidden wisdom that's given in a particular way that the, the text is written. So when you look at narrative as a normal sort of genre of literature, you, you take it um, basically at face value, what it says it, what it, is what it means. Maybe it's telling you a story, maybe it's uh, recounting history. But apocalyptic literature is a little different because there are incredible sort of vivid scenes and images and you don't read them as being literally true, um, but they are symbolic. They're, they're a colorful, artistic way for truth to be expressed. Um, when we go into the New Testament, we find that one of the forms that shows up just a few times is the form of the hymn. And so when we come to those hymns, we read them as hymns. We read them a little differently than apocalyptic literature or narrative literature or poetry. We say these were actually embedded into the letters that were written by the apostles as hymns. So they might already have been familiar to those who are reading. And as they would be reading through the epistle, the letter had come from the Apostle Paul, for example, they would say, well, that sounds familiar. That's the hymn that we sing. He's quoting a hymn that we sing. And so then you would say, well, wh why is he quoting that hymn? Why is that part of what he's arguing or what he's proposing? And so we're going to look at three of those hymns. Today we'll look at one of them. It is a beautiful hymn. And I think it's, it's all, all the more vivid when we see that it is in that kind of a format or that kind of a, a form or genre. It's in Philippians chapter 2. It is the, the lovely passage that's called um, the kenosis passage, the, the emptying passage that w we may already be quite familiar with. Now hymns um, were not strange in the Greco-Roman world. Um, it's not as though if you came to church for the first time in your life you heard hymns. Hymns were all over the place. And so just as today we sort of employ the, the forms of art and so on that are in our culture and we bring them into the church, so in that day the form of the hymn was already in the culture and they would bring that form into the church and people would recognize it. That, that's really how music has, has been formed even through the centuries. Many of the hymns that we now have um, had their beginning in strange places like, like bars and pubs um, and, and they were brought sort of dragged into the church and they were cleaned up and um, prepared as the way of worshiping of God. So in the, in the Greco-Roman world, hymns were commonplace. They were ways that the people would describe their gods. And so in the uh, 
beginning with the, the, the Greek tradition, they would be hymns written specifically about the gods and how the gods were sovereign, how the gods looked after people, how the gods made crops grow, how the gods made families grow, all of those things. Um, and, and you would bring them really as an offering to God. When it came into the period more known as the Roman period, the emperor took the place of God. And so in, in the Greco-Roman world, emperor worship was commonplace. So you would literally worship the emperor. Augustus, you would say, Augustus is sovereign. He is Lord. He is God. And in fact, if you were walking on the street in those days, one of the ways that you would greet one another was to say, Caesar is Lord. And the answer would be, yes, the Lord is Caesar. That's simply the way that you were functioning. You were acknowledging the sovereignty of the emperor and, in fact, the deity of the emperor. <coughs> they were involved in an emperor worship kind of, kind of a, a culture. So when we come to Philippians 2, we find that the hymn form is, is kind of placed in the middle of instruction about how God's people understand themselves and understand God. And we find that the hymn that the Christian used was something very similar to the hymn that the pagan would use. But rather than acknowledging the emperor as being God, you would simply replace that notion with the full understanding that God alone is God. And that was a problem that the Christians had in their society and that society had for the Christians who belonged there. Because when you were walking on the street, if you were to say, Caesar is Lord, a Christian would answer, no, Jesus is Lord. And that was actually um, considered atheism. You were disputing the notion that Caesar was Lord and you were asserting the notion that Jesus was Lord. Annabeth's going to bring me some water here. I can carry on. And this might be a good chance for you to work on your Play-Doh. <clears throat> so one commentator says this, in addition to the building of temples, the creation of statues, the offering of sacrifices, and the celebration of festivals and banquets on days devoted to the emperor, the provinces also honored this emperor through the creation of special choirs that were dedicated to singing hymns in praise of Augustus, much like the choruses that were created to sing praises to the gods. And into the middle of that, we find the hymns of the church. The first one that we're going to look at is the hymn in Philippians chapter 2. The Philippians 2 hymn that would have been familiar to the readers um, began with Paul shifting from some encouragement about how they should live in relationship to one another. And he says, well, I, I want you to do this. I want you to think, think this way. I want you to, to do that. In fact, he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
when he says have this attitude in yourselves, um, it's a way of thinking that he's relating to. He's, he, he's sort of saying, um, be careful in the way that you treat one another to have the right kind of attitude in yourselves. Did you ever find yourself in a situation where you either wonder about yourself or somebody else? What were you thinking? You know, maybe you've done something, and when you think about it, you go, oh, why did I do that? What, what was I thinking? Paul is really getting at that kind of thing and says, in, in the middle of your relationships, you should be asking yourself, what am I thinking? And he says, when you ponder that question, um, think about the way Jesus thought. Um, have the kind of attitude that Jesus had. And he says, let, let me go on and explain what that is. And as he, as he launches into the hymn, the beautiful hymn about Jesus um, is actually a staggeringly um, striking hymn in the context of the emperor worship of the day. What kind of a hymn was Philippians chapter 2? It was a revolutionary hymn. If you think about that? We, we might come across it and say it's a lovely piece of theology, and it really is. It's a perfect, um, brief description of who Jesus was and what he would be, but it actually is, is placed into the middle of a cultural milieu um, in which it would be presented as something that was atheistic. It was, it was a song of revolution. Um, it was a submersive kind of a song. It, it was, in, in essence, it was a sub submersive um, manifesto because what this text says in the form of a hymn goes completely contrary to the day in which it was presented and, and written and maybe sung. And so when we think about our day, the message of Philippians 2 has to ring very true for us. Because in the day in which Paul was writing and the Philippians were receiving this, they were in a situation where the whole of society around them was attributing to the emperor deity. Was saying that's how we think. Um, that's how we orient ourselves. And in the middle of it all, Christians are saying, no, Caesar is not Lord. In fact, here is what we know to be true about who is Lord. In this um, little piece of the hymn, the beginning of it, maybe the first stanza would be this, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. Now, hear this in the sense of it being um, a hymn of, of rebellion, a hymn of uh, sub subversion, um, spoken into the context of a wrong-headed sociology and a wrong-headed notion of who is sovereign in the affairs of this world. In Philippians 2, um, I won't regale you with all kinds of Greek words from now on, I promise you this, but, but uh, two more Greek words. I, we did the whole agape, filet, and, and 
eros, love thing. So you learn some Greek. But, but the important thing in Philippians 2 is that when you were, to, when you were trying to say the word form um, or shape or expression, so, so come back to the word form, there were two core words for the form of something. One was the word that meant the actual inner essence of the being or thing that you're talking about. And the other is the outward appearance. So one word that we might use the word form to translate meant how the person appeared, what you saw when you looked at the person, and the other would refer to what the person was really like in his or her in her being, in her real essence. And Paul very carefully, um, in quoting this hymn, repeats the fact that this piece of hymn uses both of those terms in a very, very important way. So if you were to parse that out a little bit, what, what the hymn says is this. Who, although he existed in the form of God, so, so here's the first use of form. The word that is used there in the hymn is the inner essence. So it's not who, although he existed, looking like God. That's not the point. The point is that he existed as God through and through. So what the hymn is going to say to us, whatever comes out of this, begins with it proposing that Jesus existed in the form that essentially discloses the, the, the full nature of the person. So we might say, you could translate it, who although he existed as God through and through, and then the hymn goes on, he did not re regard equality with God to be a thing to be grasped. Um, but he emptied himself. And there's the, the term kenosis, that, that he emptied himself. Now, what did he empty himself of? He didn't empty himself of his deity. He emptied himself of something else that we'll try to explain in just a second. But to, f to find how this moves ahead, although he existed as God through and through, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The idea of grasping has kind of a desperate notion to it. Um, he, he wasn't panicked. So although he was God through and through, he was willing to empty himself of something. And the emptying himself had to do with his not being anxious to, to eagerly hold on to, we'll say, the prerogatives of being God equality with God. So because he was God through and through, there were many rights and privileges that accrued to him because he was God through and through. Jesus could very easily have said, my rights are that I want to stay in heaven, I want to stay at the Father's right hand, I want to be acknowledged in all creation for all time from now on that I am King of kings and Lord of lords. But the hymn, which is subversive, um, is, is going to show us 
a whole different view of how we function in relationship to one another with Christ as our primary example. Although he was God, although he had full rights and privileges of deity, he didn't panic over that and say, I need to be acknowledged to be God in God's place. But rather than that, um, he emptied himself of that prerogative, taking the form of a bondservant. So what word is used for the term form? We might say, well, he probably just took on the appearance of a servant, right? He was God through and through, but he took on the appearance of a servant. Well, no. The striking thing in this hymn is that the very same word for form is used about his servanthood. So what it says is that although he was God through and through, he didn't consider equality with God something to be anxious about, but he emptied himself becoming a bond servant through and through. So the nature of Christ, the nature of the pre-existing Christ, was that he was thoroughly God. And the form that he took was to become thoroughly a servant. It, in, in terms of the language and the syntax, it would have been more simple, more obvious, to say although he was God through and through, he took on the guise of a servant, or he took on the role of a servant, or he took on the persona of a servant. It doesn't say that. It says that just as surely as he was God, so he became a servant. So in which way was he God? Through and through. In which way did he become a bondservant? Through and through. And when did he stop being a servant? He didn't. The, the most incredible thing about what's being proposed here against um, the worship of, of human emperors is that the one who truly is God was willing to leave behind the emperor persona, the emperor sort of bravado and swagger and all that, and he was, he was willing to become, not just for a while, but he was willing to as well become a servant through and through. And then it says, and being made in the likeness of men. Um, the term likeness, again, is, is one of those kinds of words. And it simply says that he was made um, as, as a form of, of humankind. Um, there's another word that could have been used that, that is like an exact replica, use of coins and so on when they were um, minted and, and pressed. Um, we're told that he, he was made in the likeness of men. It's not to say he did not become fully man, but it, that's not the point of, of the hymn. The hymn is saying, even though he came to be with us, to be among us, like us, being found in appearance as a man, so looking like a man, having the form of a man, not disputing that he also became a man, thoroughly became a man. Um, the point is that the hymn says he, he thoroughly became a servant. It's not trying to propose, propose that he thoroughly became a man. It's saying he was thoroughly God, he became a thorough servant, and he was in the appearance of humankind. And it is a word that, that 
aligns him with humanity. It's a, it's a word that says he was one of us. So um, being in the likeness of men, being, being one of us, being found as one of us, looking like one of us, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And again, we think, yeah, that, it's a lovely Christology. It's a lovely piece of theology about what Jesus did. But we have to understand how striking it was against the emperor worship context in which it was written and, and distributed. Um, the book that I referred to a few weeks ago uh, about the culture in which the New Testament was written and the early Christians lived, uh, I talked about patronage, how Jesus said, you can ask the Father because he's fond of you himself. You don't have to ask on through me. I, I'm not your patron in this. Another word in, in that book is the word honor. So just as patronage was, was one of the keys to that culture, so is the key of, of honor and shame. So honor and shame were very, very important in the Greco-Roman world. That's a little hard for us to grasp because they aren't as important in our world. I'll try to explain that a little bit. Shame um, was the, the, the single thing to be avoided at all costs. Uh, there are cultures of shame in our world, and I think ours isn't so much a culture of shame. And I was trying to think of how we would describe what shame is and how we would even feel or experience what shame is because it was a terrible thing in the day of the early Christians. Um, here, here's a pathetic illustration. Our dog was an example of shame. His name was Mac. He was the best dog in the world, best babysitter in the world, most tolerant dog in the world. But Mac experienced shame. Um, he would do things that he shouldn't do. That was his demise at the end. He ate things that he shouldn't have eaten, like a hoodie, etc. When Mac did something that he shouldn't do, he would not look you in the eye. Honestly, he would, he would turn his face away and refuse to look at you. I, I'm sure a, a part of it was fear. <laughs> but for me, that looking away was a picture of shame. In the early days of the church, what the Roman emperor and empire tried to do was shame Christians out of their faith. And if you read the letters of the New Testament with that in mind, you'll see how much um, the believers in the New Testament were being encouraged not to be shamed by what they were believing or what they were doing, but to look to the right person to approve of them, not to worry about pe what people thought of them. And so in, in the early days of Christianity, shame was the tool of, of the kingdom around them. They would try to shame Christians out of their belief. As time went on into the first few centuries, they got further in, in their ploy and they began to martyr Christians. When shaming didn't work, um, they would try to martyr them. 
But if you look at some of the, the narratives and, and the background of the New Testament church, um, people were mocking them. And so they were encouraged, even if they call you evildoers, don't succumb to their shaming. Um, look to the one who should approve of you, not the people around you that you think should approve of you. Let them bring on their shame if, if they need to, if they want to. You see, in our culture, I think the thing that is, is more abhorrent to us than shame is being disrespected, which is kind of the same, but not the same. But I think what, what would horrify us is that we're being disrespected. We're being dissed. In the day of Jesus and the early church, being shamed was, was the most abhorrent thing. Um, to be called something that you weren't, especially if it was a lower station than you should have had. Um, to be said you were doing things that you weren't doing them. Like, for example, that you were cannibals. So when, when you were taking the body and blood of Christ, you were cannibalizing. That was what was going on behind your closed doors. Um, all, of, all of those things were, were racking up in a day in which the bravado of the empire was lived out in the swagger of, of every citizen. Caesar is the Lord. Yes, the Lord is Caesar. And Caesar is good. And look at what Caesar has done for us. And those Christians, we don't know who they are or what they're doing. And shame was being used over and over and over against them. We go back to the hymn and wonder why Paul picks on this hymn fragment to, to place into his, his, his narrative. And we hear the second part of this first verse. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, for us in retrospect and theologically, this is marvelous, it is, is glorious. The humility of Christ is something now that we celebrate and, and we marvel at. But this is a description of shame. The most shameful thing that could happen was to be crucified. I mean, it, it was despicable. So when, when people would pass by those who were being crucified, they'd spit at them. They'd turn away from them. And the prophets and into the story of the passion of Christ, um, we have this incredible little, little idea that Jesus... He, he despised the being despised, right? He, 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 didn't, um, he didn't allow his path to be changed by the shame. He despised the shame of the cross. And it, it wasn't a necessary thing, but it was something that was true to the new nature that he took on, that he became when he became thoroughly the servant. So he, he was the suffering servant of Isaiah. And as people would walk by the cross, they would have looked at him, have known who he was, and said, tut, 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 disgraceful. And that was the most awful of, of insults that could possibly be, be 
sort of waged against him that if he really was anybody of importance, he wouldn't be hanging on a cross. That's the most despicable thing. That is the most shameful thing of all. In the world in which he was living, how could that be somebody to be admired? How could that be somebody to be worshipped? How could that ever be somebody to be deified? We know that the way things really are is that it is the gods who are good to us. It is the emperor who is at least their messenger if he's not God himself. And we will parade ourselves with pride and we will not let shame intrude into our lives. Although he was God through and through, he didn't regard that prerogative to be something to be hanging on to. But he emptied himself, taking on the true likeness of a servant, the essence of a servant through and through. And he was made like us. He was one of us. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Wherefore, and the way that this hymn um, is, is crafted is that it's a sort of a, a, a few steps down and then a few steps up. And in, in presenting the lyrics of this hymn, there is something that is totally countercultural. There's, there's something that is um, a revolution in the day of worshiping the emperor in the day of celebrating honor. Um, because Paul says, you remember the hymn, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, in the world of the Greco-Roman growing church, this, w this was a rebellion ag against all that there was around them. And to say that the person that they knew had been crucified was anything to be ac accounted for or considered was nonsense. And then to propose that God, if there is a God, not the gods or not the emperors, he has exalted, he has exalted a crucified person. He's, he's taken something absolutely shameful and exalted that. How could that be? And he has given him the name that's above every name. Not the name of Caesar, not the name of the gods, but he's given Jesus his, that name to be the name that's above every name. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether it's in heaven or earth or under the earth. Um, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We today live in a world um, which is kind of, of jostling for authority. Um, who has the authority in our world? To whom are we loyal as followers of Christ? 
even in in the days of of this election the, the question comes up about you know where our loyalty is the answer needs to be our loyalty first and foremost and always is to Jesus Christ not to the emperor right not to the president not to the prime minister not to a political party not to an ideology we must be like the early believers who dared to sing a hymn that was a revolution who dared to sing a hymn that could get them scorned shamed and soon even martyred for for what they said um, jesus christ is lord and when everything is said and done he will be known to be lord king of kings lord of lords every knee will bow every tongue will confess that he is lord there, there's scholarly debate about what it means that they will confess because it, it's it's identifying every kind of being that there is and saying that every kind of being wherever any kind of being is will acknowledge does it mean sort of um, unwillingly bow the knee or does it mean that they worship him I think it means the latter it means that what God has designed is a is a path to the absolute exaltation of Christ when everyone every every person of every nation and tongue and language and people every person of every political ideology every person of every economic state every every person of every kind will will willingly not only reluctantly but willingly will say he, he is king of kings and lord of lords he is lord um, we were not lord um, the the human institutions were not lord the human governors were not lord jesus was lord and is lord and and now we will bow the knee and confess with our tongues happily willingly worshipfully that indeed the hymn is is the truth so against this world um, that that was wrong-headed in the day that Paul was quoting the hymn we live in a world that's wrong-headed some of it some of it is right-headed some of it is wrong-headed it's it's not always clear which one is which right but our loyalty is to Jesus Christ um, our loyalty is to the worship of God the Father through the worship of Jesus Christ and looking forward to the day when we will look back and see that everything that we did everything that we tried to do whether it was with good intent or ill intent was not the point God was at work and he was not frustrated along the way um, because he was he was willing to use the most unusual path that could have been taken in becoming himself um, one of us and taking on the shame waiting for the day when he would be given the complete glory so I think Mary is right on with what she said that that chapter is about it's about humility not humility in kind of a, a, a sappy way like not not humility in a um, 
you know, seven keys to a happy, productive life kind of way or a business tool. True humility that says um, pride is the enemy of all that's good. And, and pride is the wrong pathway to be parading down. And here's the example. Jesus took steps down. How far down did he go? He became a man. He, he became a servant. Um, he died. Oh, he died on a cross. He didn't die, you know, a hero's death. He died a common criminal's death. And God acknowledged that that one who came and died, living that kind of life, is the one who is exalted to be the one about whom all of creation says Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You, you've probably heard the story, um, and I, I, I think it's apocryphal, about the person at the airline counter when he, he went up and said, um, you know, I, I want a better seat or something, and the person behind said, well, you know, it is what it is. And he said, <clears throat> do you know who I am? And the person at the counter said, no, no, sir, I don't. But she said, I'll call my supervisor over. And she called her supervisor over and said, um, do, you, do you know who this gentleman is? And the guy was standing there, fairly huffy. And the supervisor said, no, I don't believe I do. But sometimes, sir, if you look at your ticket, the name will be on there. When it comes right down to it, um, what if they diss you? What if they don't respect you? What if you don't get what you deserve? What if they don't know who you are? What, what will you do with that? So, so Philippians 2 is a grand Christology. It's a, it's a grand, pure piece about what Jesus did. Um, it's presented in, in a milieu in which it is, it is wrong-headed as far as society is concerned. But it, it is the truth, the timeless truth, that there is one sovereign, and that is God, and the one whom he has appointed is Lord. And our loyalty is to him. And so what if they say something about us that's not good or true? The New Testament just says, just make sure your behavior is above reproach. No matter what they say about you, and they will. Jesus said, if, if, they, have, if, if they have treated me the way they have, they're going to treat you the same way. And some of the strange, strange um, correspondences that we find in the few centuries following the life of Christ are that People who expect to be martyred for their faith, they, they write letters to their followers and say, don't try to save me from this. Don't stop me from the path that, that I am destined for in giving my life for following Christ. You know, don't come to my rescue. And it, it came to be... The, the highest honor 
to be martyred. Um, to follow our Savior and say, not only will I live my life as the servant that he lived, but it would be a great privilege if I would die his death. That would be just fine. It's not how the world thinks at all. It's not the way of power. It's not the way of privilege. It's, it's not the way of achievement. It, it, it's the way of emptying. Um, and this hymn, only, only one of three significant hymns in the whole New Testament, is a hymn by which God's people would collect themselves and would collect their worship and say, oh, let's think like Jesus did. Let this way of thinking be among us as well. I will just read you the message. It's very small type, but it's a nice expression of this hymn. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he, met aside, he met, laid aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. He was, it was an incredibly humbling process. He, he didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far above anyone or anything ever so that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow in worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. <laughs>